This evening being the new moon day, we come together to meditate, chant the Paritas. It's also in the Chinese calendar, it's New Year, entering the year of the horse. As it happens, our teacher, Venerable Ajahn Chah, was born in the year of the horse. So if he was still alive, he'd have been 96, I believe, this year. So it's a time to reflect on our practice. why we practice, how we practice. Look at the results that are coming from our practice, whether we need to adjust our practice, our effort in any way. One framework that the Buddha used for looking at the practice talk about people's spiritual faculties, how developed they are, how mature they are. Sata Uriya Sati Samadhi Panya The five spiritual faculties. you notice it begins with Sata, which means faith or really confidence in the practice and in our own ability to practice, our own potential for realization, <coughs> realization of the Four Noble Truths. The word satā is often linked with pasata, which means radiance, translucence of mind that comes with the arising of faith or confidence in the practice and the path of practice. It's a point we should never overlook because satā naturally leads on to wiriya and the second spiritual faculty is energy, persistent energy, persistent effort put into the practice. If there's no faith, then you're not going to have much energy or willingness to practice. But the way faith and confidence arises and the brightness of mind that comes with it grows in different ways, partly through external sources, so listening to the Dhamma as we come to understand it intellectually and the reasoning behind the practice and the teachings of the Buddha that gives us some confidence and meeting individuals who have practiced already particularly teachers we meet them live with them and they give a good example and wise reflections that we can follow
That will also inspire confidence in the practice. You can see how human beings can train and develop themselves in a good way to be better human beings, better people and even completely free from suffering. And we also gain sata from our own experience and in the end that has to be the most vital source because it comes through our own practice seeing how the practice benefits us. Maybe over time seeing changes that occur in our own perception and understanding and our own experience of happiness. But of course, in the beginning of the practice, our faith is often unstable, uncertain, easily shaken. It's not yet a mature spiritual faculty, say on the level of somebody who's absolutely confident in the path of practice and in the teachings of the Buddha because they've realized for themselves that they are true and they've seen the effect on their own mind. <coughs> Somebody like that maybe has achara sata, faith that is unshakable, constant. So it's a constant source of energy even with the most difficult challenges and difficult situations that we can face. Satar doesn't wither or fade away. Somebody's practiced to that point where they know not just they do, not just they can remember the teachings, but they know the teachings are true from experience. And they have right view. And they know what is wholesome Dhamma, what is unwholesome Dhamma. And there's no doubt or uncertainty around that. So they know why they practice, they know how to practice and what they have to do, even if they've still got kalesas affecting their mind. Their faith in the practice is not shaken, whatever karma they have to go through, whatever their own vibhaka karma. But until that point, our faith can be shaken easily. Sometimes it's shaken by external events, <clears throat> maybe we put all our faith in a particular individual that we find inspiring but then one day they don't inspire us anymore, they change. Maybe our own faith in the practice fades then. Maybe it's affected by aging or sickness. When we're young and healthy we have faith. When we meet with illness, disease, maybe our faith with us because faith is often in the beginning, it's linked to you know, being physically capable, being able to do things. If that's taken away from us by illness, maybe it challenges our very faith in the practice. One whose faith is unshakable wouldn't, they wouldn't be affected even by illness. Even old age, sickness and the thought of death or the on, 
approach of death, their faith would be a refuge rather than something that just disappears in the, under the threat of illness or aging. Sometimes our faith withers just because of the power of our own internal kalesis. It's affected when we have strong greed, anger, attachment to the world, doubt and so on. <clears throat> so one thing that supports faith is obviously the faculty of wisdom, panya, balancing faith and supporting it. That comes from listening to the Dhamma, hearing the Dhamma, and then reflecting on it regularly. So even if you are challenged by your life situation, your personal circumstances or external circumstances, you know that the practice and the path of practice is still correct, still good, can still bring you to happiness, whatever the challenge. When kilesas come up, you know, emotions, views and opinions take over the mind that are not necessarily rooted in Dhamma. Well, then faith can be shaken away very easily. Uh, many a monk has lost their faith when confronted by lust. There's temptation, maybe the chance of a relationship however brief, can make one forget all one's faith in the path of practice, the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha, Dhamma Vinaya, and one rather just sees the immediate pleasure and desire as the most important thing. Sometimes it's anger when we're disappointed, dissatisfied with ourselves or others. Out of anger we can turn away from the Dhamma, lose our faith and so on. So it's an important reflection in our practice to always be looking back at see, to see how much faith we have, how much commitment to the practice we have. Because if that's lacking, even though if we feel the Dhamma makes sense to us, we read books, hear talks, and it all seems to make good sense, it's reasonable. But if there's not much true faith, not much sincere commitment, then of course we won't really put much effort into the practice. We won't experience much results. Eventually we'll possibly, possibly die away from the practice. Our hearts won't really be there. They'll get interested in other things and attached to other things. So the Buddha even taught the bhikkhus, he said, to keep reflecting on the level of your faith and find skillful means to bring up more faith. <coughs> Going back to basics, you're reflecting on our practice, what we have to do to, to practice. The techniques of meditation is developing the beginner's mind. Going back to basic methods of mindfulness to calm the mind down on a daily basis, regular basis. Going back to the Vinaya training, over and over again, we have to learn how to go back to basics and then listen to the Dhamma and reflect on it. And little by little over time, that can have its effect. The mind can really appreciate 
what Dhamma practice brings us, keeps us out of trouble, brings us pre all kinds of benefits, even though our mind might not yet be particularly in a particularly refined state, or particularly peaceful. One can still appreciate that things could be a lot worse if one wasn't practicing. And even just having a glimpse of the path, even if we haven't gone all the way to the end of the path yet, but having a glimpse gives us confidence of where we're going in our life, what's good and bad, right and wrong, what the purpose of living as a human being in this world is. So we have to keep reflecting on this, keep learning how to bring up faith and use it as a faculty. It's not just a kind of a passing experience, you know, sort of emotional experience in the way some religions or some systems in life are where you're just looking for a quick hit of inspiration some special experience that you can remember and might be something to talk about with your friends. <clears throat> it's more like generating a consistency of faith that leads on to sincere effort on a regular basis. You know, quiet confidence in the teachings and in the practice. So even when you are under pressure, maybe when you're ill or tired, or things are not going so well, you still have something to rely on. You're not just hoping for some special experience which might not come or is very uncertain. You have a more solid kind of faith based on both wisdom and confidence in your own abilities as a human being to develop the path. Obviously, faith doesn't really become constant and unshakable until one's experienced the change of lineage, what they call the Gotara Bhujita, where the mind of a Patujana changes to the mind of an Arya. <clears throat> From then on, it's just apparent, clear, common sense that there is the path. There's Magapala Nibbana, there's the path the Eightfold Path that leads to the end of suffering. However much defilement is left in the mind, it's just apparent and there's only one way to continue in one's life and to use one's physical and mental energies just to go in one direction. Until that point, then the mind can get deluded and lost easily. You might have faith and clarity sometimes. You might hear a good Dhamma talk or have a good meditation experience and everything seems to fall in place. But then if that's not maintained, we go away, then it can all collapse and we seem back to where we were. Lost, doubting, uncertain about ourselves, uncertain about the path of practice. So we have to use what we've got to keep, keep up our faith. We use our Kalyana Mitta, you know, other practitioners, you know, the benefits of living in Sangha, having teachers, having fellow practitioners with us who have a high standard of sila, to appreciate the value of that. You know, very few people can really develop the path and become enlightened living as a hermit on their own, teaching themselves. 
more likely one would go go off doing that, become deluded. The value of Sangha is essential and the Sangha gives you direction, gives you checks and balances for your own practice, gives you good examples, examples of Ujjupatipano, Supatipano, Nyaya Patipano, Samiji Patipano, you know, practice that is straight and direct, that is good and in the right practicing in the right way, practicing with insight, practicing with integrity. It's the Sangha that provides us with that reflection, both in individuals and as a group. But we approach it with <clears throat> wisdom. It's not like a cult where you're sort of inducted and then held against your will and not allowed to go anywhere, that kind of thing. It's not a cult. It's, the Sangha is based on you know, trust and similar aspiration to end suffering. So one enters the Sangha voluntarily one can enter voluntarily, leaves voluntarily. But if you appreciate the value of Sangha and the qualities that Sangha life, Sangha practice bring up, then you can see, oh, this is a great support in, in my practice, having fellow practitioners. When we begin practice, we follow our own views and opinions coming from the lay life, and probably 99% of them are based on just kilesa and wrong view, leading us back to the world, back to more suffering, whether we realize it or not. So when you live in Sangha, you get reminded of the Dhamma, often when we forget the Dhamma. If one person's practice is failing, well, maybe other people around their practice is not failing, so they help bring us up. Or if our practice is going well, well, we can bring others up, and we make some good karma by helping others. That's the value of a community of practitioners with similar standards of Vinaya, similar outlook. And one of Ajahn Chah's great Baramis, well, he has a great number of monks, nuns, lay practitioners who follow a similar style of practice all over the world. Doesn't mean to say everyone in that Sangha is perfectly pure, but there's a standard of practice that everyone adheres to and follows. Vinaya training. So you go from monastery to monastery and the way of practice doesn't change very much. The rules are much the same, the kinds of meditation, the kinds of reflections, the monastic regulations, they don't really change. So one gets a lot of strength from that. Meeting fellow practitioners, seeing how they have overcome their own personal problems or the difficulties of developing the spiritual life in a not very spiritual world. A large Sangha can help to give some confidence, some faith. But one has to keep internalizing it. One takes one's example, one listens, one looks and learns and then takes it back in and develops one's own practice. Obviously, we can learn a lot from living with others, but we also have to accept everyone is different, so we can't compare to other pr practitioners all the time. 
Some people have skills in one area, others have skills in another. We all have our different karma and different characters. So we can't be absolutely identical. Nevertheless, we have some similarities because we have similar standard of Vinaya training. And we use the same tripitaka and we follow the same model of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path and so on. So there is similarities, things that bind us together. And there's the thread of the Vinaya. One way of talking about Vinaya is a thread that links all the bhikkhus who follow it and keep it. So if we really want to mature our spiritual faculties, say the other ones, the sata, the viriya, the sati, the samadhi, the panya, we have to keep observing and recognizing what level of faith we have. Because it's the fuel for our practice and if we're running on low fuel, well we have to go and fill it up again, fill up the tank. <coughs> tank. Wiriya is really directed to development of mindfulness, bringing up states of mindfulness. With the continuity of mindfulness, we get more of a sense of calm, stability of mind, of samadhi, tranquility of body, tranquility of mind, which facilitates wise reflection. Obviously, we can reflect on the Dhamma at any time if we're willing to. You don't have to wait until you're in a deep state of samadhi to develop wisdom. And we learn wise reflection just in our daily life on the use of the requisites. Reflecting on the Vinaya, reflecting on how we're relating to the world around us. How skillful are our personal relations with other people. How skillful are our relations to the environment. As bhikkhus we, we learn to be modest in our desires, frugal, economical in the way we use things. We learn not to harm others in our speech, our actions. And we can wisely reflect on this constantly through our day. But obviously as sati and samadhi come up and we develop stronger states of samadhi that last longer and we feel more calm, we get better at letting go of the hindrances and distractions well, obviously our wisdom and insight can deepen. Really, we're coming to reflect on what Ajahn Chah talked about as aramana. It's the Pali word. In Thai, they say arom. And aramana means mental object, sometimes translated as mental state, sense object. Or in a more normal sense, they talk about mood. We're learning to reflect on our moods. But mental objects are rom, aramana. One's learning to really see how the mind is swayed and affected by aramana. In the Pali, we have itaramana and anitaramana. Itaramana means pleasant objects, pleasant objects of mind. So seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, or mentally turning to pleasant objects. Anitaramana, unpleasant objects. 
And this is our connection to the world through our senses and how our vibhaka karma comes to us. We have pleasant objects come our way, we have unpleasant objects come our way. So aramana arising all the time and the mind gets stuck on aramana. So they sometimes compare aramana, mental objects, as like a walking stick for somebody with a bad leg, always having to lean on the walking stick in order to walk. The mind is always leaning onto an aramana, an object. It's because it's a little bit weak. It's always looking for something. You notice in the course of your training and practice, you know, sometimes any object is better than what you've got. Even sometimes a worse object or even sometimes we'll take some stressful object as something, something to take, occupy the mind, take up our interest. Say if you're angry, sometimes we actually indulge in anger, just thinking through why we're angry and the issues. This is all based on the fact that the mind is always looking for an object to hold on to, cling on to, even though it's suffering. Sometimes we are willing to accept the suffering, even if we can half recognize the suffering, we'll go for it. Obviously, extreme suffering is obvious, it's suffering. But mild suffering, sometimes we'll still go for it, just looking for a distraction, something to cling on to, think about, concern ourselves with. We're all warriors and we concern ourselves about the future and our health and can I do it, can I practice and what will I do in another five years from now. Even if you're in a nice peaceful forest with no one bothering you, your mind will find something to worry about or get angry about or lust for. That's the nature of a mind that is not yet strong with sila samadhi panya, it's still weak and goes for Aramanas, holds on to them and attaches to them. So we're using the path, the training, to give us some insight into the suffering of all that, the attachments that come up and the effect on the mind. What do Aramanas do to the mind? You know, the pleasant ones bring up one kind of attachment. We like them, we want them, we want more of them and we want to hold on to them. When we lose the pleasure, we get upset. Even when we got it, we're worried we'll lose it. When we do lose it, we get unhappy again. When we're unhappy, then we're seeking more pleasure again. So the mind is constantly moved around by aramanas. And all our spiritual faculties are affected. You have a bad experience, then you don't want to meditate. So you don't put effort in, you lose faith, you don't put effort in, you don't develop mindfulness, no samadhi arises, no wisdom arises. How many times has that happened in your practice? Maybe you blame some external person or situation, say, oh, made me feel down, feel bad. But if you're clear, you also have to step back a bit and say, well, maybe it's just the mind is weak, it's attached to this aramana, so there's no mindfulness arising, no wisdom, no reflection, and so on. It's happening all the time. We're a slave to our aramanas. We like the pleasant ones, we don't like the unpleasant ones. So Ajahn Chah's very simple training is learn to keep the mind in the middle. 
That's why sati is in the middle of the five spiritual faculties. You know, sata and virya are on one side, samadhi and panya are on the other. Sati is the path to the deathless. And sati is the mindfulness in the middle of all these aramanas. Whether it's physical, rupa dhamma, this body, whether it's mental, vaitana, sanya, sankara. All the aramanas in the world are to be known through the development of mindfulness and then wise reflection. They're all anicca, dukkha, anatta. Just like we use the trolley bins in the monastery, we collect up the rubbish and put them all in the bins to keep the place clean and tidy and nice for us to live. If you want to keep your mind clean and tidy, well, you have the trolley bin of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and every, every aramana goes into that trolley bin. Even the pleasant ones, you get what you want, still put it into an Icha Dukkha Anatta, otherwise you'll suffer. You get what you want, when conditions change, that happiness changes, it disappears, you'll be disappointed, upset. Don't go for it, don't attach to it, just be mindful. Doesn't mean to say you can't experience pleasure or have to have any particular attitude towards it, but you just know pleasure is impermanent. Pain is impermanent. And life is made up of pleasure and pain. That's Vibhaka Kama coming back to us all the time as human beings. Whether we reflect on it or not, it's happening. So we might as well train our minds in mindfulness and wisdom so at least we know what's happening and understand why the mind reacts in the way it does. If you train your mind in that way, well, you can actually free it from attachment, liberate it from these reactions and constant craving and attachment arises based on pleasure and pain. When it's external, people do things that you like, say things you like, they don't do things that you like, they say things you don't like. Whether it's internal, your own memories, perceptions, thought formation is coming up, pleasant, unpleasant. Either way, you just get your trolley bin there, open the lid and throw it all in there. It's all anicca, dukkha, anatta. The more we do that, the more the mind just stays with the stillness of mindfulness and the clarity and the sharpness of wisdom. And this is where we can keep it in the middle, free from suffering. Even if things are going really badly, you can still find a place of spaciousness and emptiness based on the presence of mindfulness and wisdom. Even in the midst of the worst kind of suffering, pain, difficulty, the worst challenges life can throw at you, there's still a space for satipanya in the middle of that. Your trolley bin can be as big as it needs to be to throw the biggest aramana that you can possibly imagine can still go into the trolley bin. It's just anicca, dukkha, anatta. The biggest pleasure, the biggest pleasure, the most happy, mindful meditation state you've ever experienced is still anicca, dukkha, anatta. The most unpleasant, torturous, kind of painful feeling, physical or mental, that you've experienced is still anicca, dukkha, anatta. It covers everything. In the mind of a Buddha or an Arahant, you know, it sees every last aramana as anicca, dukkha, anatta. <coughs> this is how the Buddha and the enlightened disciples reached that state of enlightenment, reflecting on their experience in this way training, honing their skills in reflecting on anicca dukkha anatta. 
using these five spiritual faculties, you're maturing them, making them strong, making them unshakable to the point where you know, the biggest, most momentous happiness or sadness of life is still anicca dukkha anatta. Very easy to say, but not so easy to practice. So that's why we do practice. We have to learn to develop this skill, the sharpness of the mind, the steadiness of mind, the clarity of mind, to keep reflecting on our experience, using the training, using the Vinaya, using the Dhamma, using the quietness of the monastery, using the supports of Sangha and so on, to bring our minds to the point where it can see an dukkha anatta in the Aramana that it's experiencing. They say that the arahant is like he's thrown away the walking stick. His mind is free. It's not clinging on to or attached to any aramanas. It's an empty space that is free, peaceful, happy in itself because it's not attached. It's not leaning on anything and not expecting any aramana to bring it happiness anymore. You can see them all for what they are. So I'll leave you with some these few reflections tonight and we can in a moment we can chant the Puritas. <laughs> 